God's word says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let's pray. Lord, even now, we're in a spiritual battle. Where your word is sown, the devil comes, loves to come and take it away before it can go deep into our hearts. So would you allow your word to go deep and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold? It's in your power and name we pray. Amen. Well, what comes to your mind if you hear the phrase spiritual battle? Perhaps you think of the comical caricature of those beings on your shoulders. One is the white angel with a robe, a halo, and a spear, and he's whispering you encouragements to do what's right. But on the other shoulder is the one in the red tights with the trident, with the horns, who's enticing you to do what's evil. Others hear spiritual warfare, and <laughs> I mean, do people actually believe that stuff? I mean, we're in a world of science. I mean, spiritual stuff. I mean, come on, that's not real. Others... A lot of Americans say, oh, the demons, the devil, they're not real. They're not. But then they love to watch movies that include people being possessed and are filled with the demonic. Or maybe you think of Jesus and his apostles casting out demons, exercising them. Perhaps you think not so much of demons having control over aspect of someone's life, but maybe so-called demons of a demon of lust or a demon of pride or fear. And the list goes on and on. Well, sadly, I think often we are completely unaware of the ongoing spiritual battle that we face. That would be bad enough, but also we tend to be overly confident in our strength to fight, and thus we don't, give, we don't use the weapons that God has given us to fight. This morning, we're going to see that God empowers us so that we can win this spiritual battle against the devil. Today we're going to look at verses 10 through 12. Many of you may know that verses 13 and on will talk about the armor of God and give very specific things. We'll save that for a future date. But today, in verses 10 through 12, we need to see our strength for the battle, what our enemy is, and what the battle is. So three sections, our strength, our enemy, and the battle. And it begins here in verse 10, finally. And some people have thought, well, look, this is a new section of thought, completely unrelated to what's going before. Yet, this is not a new topic that Paul is like, well, where do I spit this spiritual battle topic in? I, you know what, I'm, I'm almost done, I better write about it here. No, this is the natural conclusion to everything Paul has said. Now, nothing in his letter would make you think the Christian life is all going to be peaches and cream, but the last three sections, they do seem kind of idyllic. Husband and wife, loving each other, serving one another, children and parents, obeying and caring for each other, masters and servants, loving and serving each other. And yet, Paul wants us to realize that to honor God will be a struggle and a battle. Not just a struggle with a particular sin, but rather marriage, parenting, workplace, church, relationships, everywhere we are, there is a spiritual battle going on. 
Remember Ephesians 2, 2, where it described our condition before Christ, and it said, You are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. And when God saved us, when he transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, Satan didn't just go, eh, lost another one. No, Satan rages. And he works to keep us from being a light for the gospel to others. And knowing that the devil opposes us should make us feel our impotence in this fight. Yet good news, we are called not to look within to defeat the devil, but rather to look to the Lord. Notice the command here in verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Our strength never comes from ourselves. You know, Christianity gives us this paradox that it's only when we realize our inability that we have any ability. Only when we realize that we're weak do we have strength. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. A thorn, Paul writes, was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast, Paul writes, all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So are you trying to lead this life on your own? Do you think you are enough or have enough to deal with the most serious challenges you face in this life? You know, our culture tells us we can do everything we set our mind to. Even our Christian culture will post things like, God will never give you more than you can handle. Well, that's not true. Or at least it's not complete, because we need to remember what Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. God purposefully gives us more than we can handle, so that we are then forced to rely on Him. If you think you can do it on your own strength, you are not realizing the battle. You know, this is why Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me can bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. He didn't say, well, apart from me you can do a little bit. You can do a pretty good job. I mean, you're not going to be perfect, but you'll do an all right job. You'll get a passing grade. No, Jesus says, apart from me you can do nothing. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, I have non-Christian friends. They're kind. They're loving. Sometimes they're very sacrificial. I mean, are we saying that's nothing? Well, no. We're not saying those acts of kindness and love and sacrifice are nothing. And if you see them in their life, you should give thanks to God for them and give thanks to them. Thank you for serving me in that way. What we're saying is to honor God is not just to do the right thing. It's to do it with the right motive. And so to honor God, you have to do it through Christ so that he gets the glory. That's what good fruit is when God is glorified in it. And we cannot do that apart from Christ. And if we are living in the strength of Christ, we bear much fruit, he tells us. And notice here in Ephesians 6, this be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might is 
present tense. This is a command that needs to be ongoing in action. In other words, when we became a Christian, we weren't filled with strength that will last us until we go to be with the Lord. No, each day we must find our strength in God. That's why Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. He who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. You can't look back on past victories and go, you know, I'm done. I'll, I'll never do that again. Well, those are words that should make you be alert and go, I can't believe I'm thinking that. I'm in danger. If I think I'm good in my own, that is when I'm weak. You know, being strong in the power of God is a really important theme in this letter. You may know, as we've looked through it, that Paul twice conveyed to them, I'm praying that you would know the power of God in your life. We'll look at the first one, Ephesians chapter 1, 19. So flip back there. He also prayed for this in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. But in Ephesians 1, Paul is giving this prayer of all these things he wants them to know. And look at verse 19. For there he says, want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. God's power is exceedingly magnificent. It surpasses all in greatness. And the image that Paul gives for us to grasp this is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. You know, Paul could have given many examples of his power. I mean, he spoke and the universe came into existence. That's quite powerful. And yet his resurrection is the example because resurrection conquers death. It defeats sin. It's the first fruits of a perfect eternity for everyone who trusts in Christ. You know, there can be no greater power than a power that overcomes death. And God not only has unequaled power, but notice he loves to share because this power is to us who believe. So Christian, though we should feel totally inadequate in ourselves, we should have great boldness and confidence in God's power. You know, this was King David before he was king and he was a young man. We all know the story. All the Israelites are rightly looking out onto the battlefield and they're afraid because there is Goliath. And in their own strength, they should be afraid. But David has a different mindset. He says it when he goes out to meet Goliath. He says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. You know, David had confidence when he looked to God. And friends, you may think it's pointless to continue battling that sin. I've given in so many times. What's the point? You may have given up on your relative who seems hellbent on their own destruction. You may look at your marriage or your finances or many circumstances in your life and think there is no hope. And as long as Israel looked this direction, there was no hope. 
But when David lifted his eyes and saw that the battle belongs to the Lord, that is when he went forward with confidence. So we need to be grounded both in our desperate need for God's power because we have an enemy, but also we need to have confidence because the power we're given is impotent. Not impotent, omnipotent. Quite a difference there. Because it's resurrection power. But that really leads us to consider who is our enemy. And we're just given that description in Ephesians 6. Please get your Bible out if you put it away. Hopefully you don't do that during sermons. But if you have, we're going to be looking at several passages here. But first, Ephesians 6 and 11, it tells us, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so Paul's telling us, clothe ourselves, put on God's armor. And as I mentioned earlier, that phrase is mentioned here. And then in verse 14, he'll go back and pick up and explain what that armor looks like. But he says, we need this armor in order to stand against the devil's wiles, craftiness, and schemes. Now the Bible describes the devil with several terms. Satan, Beelzebub, the prince of the power of the air, Lucifer, a roaring lion, one who disguises himself as an angel of light. The devil doesn't wear Prada, nor does he have a trident, a horn, and a bifurcated tail. Because the devil loves those caricatures of him because they distract us from the reality of his existence. Along with this, the devil doesn't approach us and say, you know, why don't you start taking drugs so you'll ruin your health, relationships, and life? No, he whispers, this will give you a great experience, which it will for a short time. This will make you part of the group, which it will do till you run out of money. The devil is the best of the worst marketers. He shows you all of the good and none of the bad. He never mentions sin's repercussions of guilt, shame, personal destruction, and eternity of hell. You know, Satan doesn't come and whisper, abandon faith in Christ. We'd all go, no. He just whispers, did God really say? You know, he takes God's word and he twists it. Well, God tells you to love, so why are you telling them that they shouldn't live in that lifestyle? You're a child of the king. Why aren't you living like a prince? That pastor's not perfect. Why are you listening to him? And we could go on and on, because the devil takes good things and he just twists them a little so that we will be deceived. He's the wolf in sheep's clothing doing anything he can to destroy the sheep. And as I noted at the beginning, there's a lot of misunderstanding around spiritual warfare. So we're going to look at five passages that will hopefully give us some clarity on Satan, his work, and how we fight him. Let's, they're going to be all in order in the New Testament. So flip back to Acts. So we're in Ephesians. So before it is Galatians, then 2nd, 1st Corinthians, Romans, and then the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5. So back a few books. Acts chapter 5. And here the early church is being radically generous in giving to one another. And we then read in Acts 5, 1 through 4, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? 
Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now, did you notice there the two aspects of what led Ananias and Sapphira to do this? Well, first we see in verse 3, Satan filled their heart. Now, when many Christians today hear that, they would think that they've become under the control of Satan. What needs to happen now is an exorcism or binding of Satan. But that's not what Peter says at all. Look what he says in verse 4. Because he continues, you have contrived this deed. When they chose, they contrived to sin, they were allowing satanic influence into their heart, into their actions. Satan, though, was not forcing them to do anything, rather tempting them. They still had control. Well, we're flipping to the right, so Acts and then Romans. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which we've looked at quite a bit lately in adult Sunday school and some here as we have preached through Ephesians, we've looked at 1 Corinthians 7. And in this passage, Paul is giving instructions on marriage. And look at 1 Corinthians 7, 5, where in regards to marital intimacy, God exhorts married couples, 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you, because of your lack of self control so it's clear here satan is tempting us but it only works because we lack self-control in other words we have the ability to use self-control though we're weak thus we can never truly say the devil made me do it the devil may tempt us but we're always responsible for whether we give in to his temptations or not We'll flip one book to the right, 2 Corinthians, and we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where we're going to see one of Satan's main goals in this life. 2 Corinthians 4, and we'll look at verse 4. So 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, currently the God of this world, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know, Satan works to make everyone look at Christ, to look at God, to look at following God and go, Ugh, that's horrible. Why would I ever want to do that? That's going to ruin your life if you choose to follow Christ. You know what's a great life? Follow yourself. You do what you want to do. That's life. And yet that is the lie of Satan. I mean, he makes us ask, what could a man dying on a cross have to do with my meaning, my happiness? And salvation is when God opens our eyes so we go, the beauty of the cross. The joy of denying myself and living for God. And once we come to see the beauty of Christ, Satan then works to keep us from enjoying Christ. And one of the ways he does that is to make us wallow in our shame and our guilt. Oh, I've been a Christian for 30 years and I'm still struggling with this. Could God even love me? I mean, how could he continue to love someone like me? 
We see this played out in 2 Corinthians because in love, the church in Corinth had removed a man because he was unrepentant of his sin. You can read about it more in 1 Corinthians 5. And yet, in this second letter, he then writes, because though this man repented, for some reason the church had not yet reaffirmed their love for this man. And notice what he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, so back two chapters, in verses 8 through 11. So 2 Corinthians 2, this is our fourth passage, 8 through 11. Paul says, So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that you might test, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, uh, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You know, Satan's designs are for us to take a good thing and take them too far. It's a good thing to call a brother to repent of sin. But it's not good if they repent and you don't reaffirm your love. Satan wants us to be so concerned about sloppy evangelism that we end up not doing any at all. That we're so concerned that our children aren't part of this world that they never engage the world. So we must be wise to Satan's devices and how to fight him. And that leads to our last verse that we'll turn to. Go all the way to James chapter 4. So all the way, the next major book is Hebrews, at least in length. And then right after Hebrews is James. If you get to the Peters, John or Revelation, you've gone too far. So right after the book of Hebrews, James chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 7 and 8. And James here is discuss, discussing what should we do when the devil's temptations come. And James tells us, chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Notice that it does not say to cast out the devil or bind the devil. It doesn't say to recognize the demon of temptation which is alluring you. you know, perhaps in the demonic world there are demons that specialize in different things. Perhaps there is a demon of lust and a demon of anger and a demon of pride. That may be true, but nowhere in the New Testament are we told to figure out which one is the one tempting you and to bind it or cast it out. Now please don't mishear me. I clearly recognize Jesus and the apostles cast out demons. Yet it's interesting Nowhere in the New Testament are we told to make that our regular practice. You know, Paul wrote three letters to a pastor, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, telling him about pastoral ministry, and never once does he mention exorcisms, this is how you bind Satan or anything like that. Rather, he instructs them to preach the word, exhort people, cause it, encourage them to repent of their sin, have patience. He exhorts churches, take your thoughts captive, Resist the devil. Now, I'm also not saying that the devil's not active today. Rather, my point is to simply emphasize the way they are normally overcome today. Yet, how in the world can we, frail humans, cause the devil to flee from us? Well, it's because, as we sang in Martin Luther's great hymn, The Prince of Darkness Grim, We Tremble Not for Him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Well, what's that one little word that Martin Luther's talking about? He's talking about the word made flesh. 
Jesus. And Jesus came to conquer the devil. And thus as he prepared for the cross, he said in John 12, 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. We had read for us earlier Luke chapter 11. You may remember in there what happened is Jesus cast out a demon and the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders say, well, Jesus can only do this because he's doing it by the power of Satan himself. And Jesus first kind of gives a very logical argument. Well, look, a kingdom divided, itself, divided against itself isn't going to stand. That doesn't make any sense. And he then added in verses 21 and 22, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when the one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus is saying he is the stronger one. He came and he conquered the strong one, Satan. And since Jesus bound Satan, Jesus now goes through and removes Satan's demons. That's what Jesus is telling them in Luke 11. Thus, Jesus tells these doubtful religious leaders that he came on a military conquest his defeat of the demons was ultimately a picture of his defeat of the strong one over them satan himself and this defeat of satan was not an incidental byproduct as jesus came just to deliver us from hell no defeating satan was one of jesus main missions that's why the apostle john writes first john 3 8 the reason the son of god appeared was to destroy the works of the devil Earlier we read 1 John 5, 4. Because how do we then have victory? This is the victory that overcomes our faith. Faith in Christ protects us from all spiritual forces. You don't need to put the sign of the cross over you when you go somewhere. You don't need to have a charm. You don't need to have a cross you hold on to. You don't need to come here and come up and rub the cross or go outside you don't need any magic or mystery. You need faith in Christ. Because he is greater than the one who is in the world. And so we really need to live in this dual reality. <coughs> First, the devil is real. But second, he's defeated. We don't minimize him or the spiritual battle that rages. But neither do we live in fear of him or defeat. The prince of darkness, Grim, we tremble not for him. And to not minimize the battle begins with, well, what is the battle? And that leads to our last section, back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Ephesians 6, 12, our battle. There again it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, Paul describes our battle as a wrestling match, the Greco-Roman sport of hand-to-hand -hand combat to pin another. It's a no-holds-bar, winner-take-all struggle, and so is the spiritual battle that we engage in. Now, to interpret the Bible accurately, context is key. The context here is not... Ephesians 1 through 3, where Paul is describing our condition and how we're delivered from destruction to eternal life. 
That's our justification. We are made perfect, perfectly righteous in Christ by nothing we do. We are impotent. Chapter 2, we are dead. But now we're past that, and Paul's talking to believers. He's saying, well, now how do you live as righteous people? And in that, we need to be a part. We need both God's strength and our engaging the fight. We work, or we fight, because God works in us. And the spiritual wrestling match is not against flesh and blood, he tells us, meaning other humans. Rather, our struggle is against evil spiritual forces, which Paul describes in four ways. He calls them rulers, authorities, world powers of this darkness, and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, the Bible, the Bible only gives us glimpses of the angelic and demonic realm. So we don't have a crystal clear picture, this hierarchy, this goes here. Some people take a lot of verses and try to draw those, and they might be right. But we do know one hierarchy exists. Satan is in control over the demons. And at times, when the Bible says the devil does something, it is rather an intermediary working for him. It's similar to how we might say, President Putin invaded Ukraine, or the Ukrainians are holding Putin back. Well, Putin is nowhere near Ukraine. I mean, he never took up a gun or shot a cannon. He is being represented by his men. The devil is not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. So if he's here tempting me, which I'm a really low fish on the totem pole, he can't be tempting some Christian in China. And so when it talks about us being tempted by the devil, it's through his demonic forces. And as we said earlier, when Satan filled Ananias and Sapphira's heart, this does not mean they were possessed in the way we think of that term. You know, due to Hollywood and other, sometimes even Christian distortions, we think of demonic or satanic possession, meaning that you lose full control of your body. That you're just a shell that it does whatever the demon tells you. And yet, it's clear, Ananias was still fully responsible for his actions. He could have stopped what he was doing, confessed, and repented. What I'm trying to say is that the normal way Satan works through his demons is through thoughts and ideas. Or to say it another way, Satan tempts, influences, and infiltrates us through our minds, not gaining control of our bodies. I think it's important to show this. So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So we've been there just back a few books. Two books. We're in Ephesians and Galatians. 2 Corinthians 10. So just a couple flips of the page. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Very similar language to here. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3, we're not waging war cutting to the flesh. Well, that's kind of what he's saying in Ephesians. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. So he's talking about the spiritual battle. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Okay, well, what are these strongholds that need to be defeated? Verse 5. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You know, Paul is saying we fight strongholds by destroying arguments, opinions against God. In other words, the normal spiritual conflict involves our minds, 
fighting for our thoughts to be captive to God and not be captured by Satan. In fact, every time the word of God is presented to you and me, there is a spiritual battle going on. You know, Jesus explained this in his famous parable of the sower and the seed. Luke 8, 11 and 12. Jesus says, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. It's a battle in the mind. And remembering this, and that our battle is not against humans, flesh and blood keeps us from one of the greatest errors that Satan wants us to be led into. You know, he wants us to see our enemy as people, not him. Then we no longer attack ideas. We think they are the problem. Yet when they, people, are the problem, they're our enemy, we have a hard time loving them. You know, we sang in our first song today, of Church Arise, to love the captor, sorry, we want to love the captive soul and rage against the captor. We rage against Satan and his ideas, not the person in front of us. You know, sometimes in the U.S. we talk about we're battling. We're in a so-called culture war. And yet our battle is not against people on the other side, so to speak. It's against the ideas on any side that are opposed to Christ. It's against any ideas that we might raise that are opposed to to Christ. And this is really important because it is so hard to love and want to be engaged with and witness to people if you're going, they're the problem. They're the enemy. We're to love the captive soul and rage against the captor. And now this can seem theoretical, so let's bring it real close to home. Your battle against anger is not due to your spouse, children, or siblings, flesh and blood. But they make me angry. No, they don't. They are the pressure points that reveal the anger inside of you. They might be tempting you to anger, but you only have anger spill out if anger is already inside. You know, the enemy we must fight against is the devil, the world, and our own flesh. So thus, the spiritual battle is real. And it normally occurs with a battle for our thoughts. We should neither fear the devil nor cower, but go forward in the fight in the strength that God supplies. We know that God empowers us so that we can win the spiritual battle against the devil. And I want to conclude by telling a story about a Christian. His name is Richard Gantz. And he was very well in school. He got good grades in graduate school. And he got a postgraduate degree in psychoanalysis. He then went to work for a very prestigious program. And one day, he had a patient who was named Emmanuel. You all know Emmanuel means God with us. And Emmanuel had been with them for four years and had never said an intelligent word. Well, this day, Emmanuel was extremely agitated, hyperventilating, rocking back and forth. And Richard encouraged him, Emmanuel, whatever you want to say, just let it out. And Emmanuel blurted out, I am Jesus Christ. Well, Richard unthinkingly replied with Matthew 24, 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Emmanuel replied, where did you read that? And in his mind, Richard saw his career in a crossroads. I can tell him about this, he'd probably get fired. 
Or I could say nothing and continue, maybe even being the head of the department one day. And Richard told him, it's from the Gospel of Matthew. Well, Richard didn't think much about it. He went on. And a month later, Manuel knocked on his office door. And he said, I want to become a Christian. When? Now. So Richard told him of God creating us. Our problem being sin. Jesus being the only solution. And how we receive Jesus by repentance and faith. And Emmanuel trusted Christ. A week later, Richard had another meeting with the head of the department. And he said, Richard, in 30 years I've heard some crazy stories. This is the craziest one I've ever heard. Emmanuel has been saved and is going around the ward and telling everyone about Jesus. And then when they have questions, you know what he says? Go ask Dr. Gans. And then Richard was presented. You can either never talk about Jesus again, or you can be done. Well, 30 days later, Richard walked out for the last time ever from the psychiatric ward, and Emmanuel was with him, and another man who had trusted Christ. Now, please don't mishear me. My point is not at all that in a psychiatric ward, everyone is demon-possessed, or if we could all just get them to convert, then everything would be fixed in a psychiatric ward. That's not my point. Rather, the story illustrates the two extremes we deal with today. The first extreme is that the spiritual is completely fake. There's nothing real about it. I mean, you have to go back and think. Shouldn't the head of the department said something like, you know, Richard, what you believe, it makes no sense to me. I think it's crazy. But, you know, Emmanuel hadn't said a word in four years. And now he's carrying on conversations with people. So I don't really know what's going on, but... We need to pursue this a little more because it works. I mean, let's just be like very pragmatic. It works. No, he doesn't say that. You either shut up about that and keep your job or you stop because that stuff's not real and that's what we believe. Even though it's staring them in the face, they can't believe in the spiritual. But the other extreme is often what we get in Christian circles. What did Richard not do? He didn't go in the room and say, in the name of Jesus, come out demon that is in Emmanuel. What did he do? He talked to him. He asked him questions. He told him the gospel. And Emmanuel believed. And his life was changed. So again, I'm not saying that's going to happen with everyone. There are extreme cases. I completely understand that. But the normal Christian life, fighting the spiritual realm, is a fight in the mind. Well, what about you? As far as I know, none of you are going around saying, I'm Emmanuel, I'm Jesus Christ. And yet, all of us are living for some kingdom. You know, that's what this is all about, really, is that the spiritual battle is that we are all either living for God or we're living for ourselves, and then that ultimately means for the devil. You know, if we hired someone, a private investigator, and they followed you for a month, they were able to get your phone, get your computer, get your bank account, they could watch you, and they gave a report after a month, what would they say your life is really about? What is it that excites you? What is it that drives you? What is the kingdom that you're serving? Because it may not be some deep spiritual warfare battle, but it might be a kingdom of me, me, me. Or it might be a kingdom of service to your family. Or it might be many things. But God says the spiritual battle is fought so that we want to have a kingdom that's serving him. So where are you in the spiritual battle?
Let's pray. Oh Lord, we can be so deluded to what's really going on in life. We get so caught up in day to day just trying to make it to the end of the day that we lose sight of reality. Would you help us to have eyes to see, one, the battle, but two, the great hope and joy of knowing you. That there is no greater pleasure than to be in a battle for you in your kingdom and your glory. So Lord, would you stir us to be faithful in the battle, that you might be honored, that your son would be exalted. It's in his name we pray. Amen.